Mac Power Users, Episode 438, Workflows with Matt Gemmel. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. Good morning, David. How are you? Great, Katie. How are you today? I'm well. We've got a... uh, Another great workflow episode with you. I'm very excited to welcome Matt Gimmel to Mac Power Users. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much. Uh, so Matt is doing all kinds of interesting things. He um, has been a longtime Mac user. He is now an iOS aficionado. Uh, he is a tech writer. He is an author. He is a novelist. Uh, and we're going to talk about all kinds of uh, great things that that Matt does with his primarily iOS devices now, but but maybe a little bit about his his Mac as well. Um, but before we do, David, we, we've got a few uh, preliminary things that we wanted to, to dive into here. Yeah, it seems like we have a lot of announcements lately, but uh, there's a couple that I definitely want to get out there. The first is thank you, everyone, for signing up at talk.macpowerusers.com. Uh, uh, you now are in the thousands, so there's just lots of people signing up. I was looking at the stats this morning. We're getting 20,000 page views per day on average. And just tons of activity in there. People are sharing their work setup. People are talking about apps, talking about hardware, and even just kind of miscellaneous stuff. So it's actually really fun. Uh, I encourage you to go check it out. We just like got this set up in the last month, and it's already off to a roaring success. And a couple other things is uh, I want to thank you all. I, I asked uh, last episode, hey, if you've got a chance, give free agents another try. We've got the first episode out now with Mike Schmitz, the new co-host who was here on our show just a few months ago and it's the shows are great we've got a couple more in the can and there's just a lot of good stuff to look forward to there and uh finally i've got a third podcast katie floyd those things are like tribbles david i've said that before i guess they are um so uh uh, Rose Orchard from the uh, from the uh, the discourse group and formerly the Facebook group. She's a programmer, and her and I spend a lot of time geeking out on automation together privately. And we occurred to us one day, why aren't we sharing this? So we've put together a show. Um, it's kind of interesting. It, it, I feel like it's like the um, it's the complement to Mac Power Users. Uh, you know, whereas Mac Power Users covers a lot of stuff, uh, uh, this show is just going to cover very narrow stuff, but deeply. Um, it's going to be called Automators. And every episode, we're going to take on one automation topic and discuss it. And then we're going to share our favorite workflow workflows and our favorite Apple scripts or whatever it is we do to accomplish that automation task. The goal is with each episode to teach you how to automate something on the Mac, the iOS, and maybe even on the web. Uh, the episode zero is up where Rose and I memojified ourselves, which is kind of funny. You can watch that on YouTube. Unsubscribe. No, sorry. <laughs> no worries. And then, um, episode one is also up, which is all about calendar events. You know, how do you automate calendar events? And we have some really great workflows and ideas to do that. Uh, the goal is to keep the shows 45 minutes or less. And it's a lot of fun. We've had a great time recording them. This is another one where we've got a bunch in the can now and a lot of great content coming up. So if you listen to MPU, I bet this is a show you're going to like. You can find it over at relay.fm slash automators. Yeah, I'm very excited. And I'm I'm so happy to see Rose branching out and, and doing more in the tech community and with automation. And uh, it's it's great to see her turn into from just Rose who was listening to Mac Power users, Rose who was contributing to Mac Power users. And I, I it's great to see Rose out there. So I'm so happy for her and 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 for you as well, David. 
Yeah, well, she's just a natural at it. And this is truly something that grew out of just collaboration together on things where we're like, wait a second, we should be sharing this. So it, it's fun, just like Mac Power users, it's a show that's a ton of work to produce because we're building all these scripts and we're going to have a website at automators.fm where you can download the scripts so you can see them while you, you know, while you run them. Um, it's, it's super geeky, but I think it's accessible to anyone. So, so please go check it out. I'm really proud of it. And like I said, if you listen to MPU, it's a compliment. And frankly, the shows are going to bounce back and forth. Like when we cover automator shows, also give you references to MPU episodes on things where we go deeper. Okay. But we're here to talk about other things today. And we've got a great guest for this episode. Um, Matt is here to talk to us all about his great workflows, both on Mac and now primarily on, on iOS. Um, but Matt, you were a longtime Mac user, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, how you've made the, the switch to iOS. So tell us a little bit about your, your origin story and how you came to be the tech guy and then the Mac tech guy. Well, um, I've been a, a Apple Platforms user since uh, I was very young indeed. Um, I, I used Macs since uh, since early high school, at the very least. Um, it was sort of home microcomputers for me before that, but I was a, a Mac user from those formative years, uh, and that continues right the way up through, uh, you know, the, the System Seven, even System Six, and Mac OS Eight, and then on to Mac OS Ten, and so on and so on. Uh, long before we had iOS devices. Uh, professionally, uh, as soon as I, I came out of university, my degree was in computing science. I was a software developer um, for various companies. And then I started uh, sort of doing it as a consultant uh, for other companies, including Apple. Uh, and that was mostly initially macOS development. It was usually user interface components and things like that, mostly for internal tools. Uh, as iOS and the, the iPhone and then later the iPad uh, sort of became incredibly successful, naturally the development sh- tended to shift to those platforms and uh, my interest sort of was split between the two. Uh, the common factor, I guess, all along was that I was always very much a, a tweaker and a customizer of, of things right from a sort of, you know, custom uh, label colors and folder icons on System 7 way back in the day, right up through quickies and micro utilities. And then with macOS 10 doing things on the shell, I always like to customize my environment just so. Yeah, I remember, you know, Matt, I remember that when you had the folder full of icons and when you got a new Mac, the first thing you had to do is change all the icons out. You remember? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And do you remember the, the magazines? Uh, they would have a cover. Well, laterally, I cover CD-ROM, and they, they always tended, as well as having the, the freeware and the shareware and the demos and the system updates, because almost no one had the internet, they would also have just a load of icons you could paste onto stuff. Yeah, that was fun. That, it really was. That continued in Mac OS ten for a while, but I don't think that's even a, a thing anymore. You, you don't you don't really uh, see it so often. I, I assume you can still do it. Um, I mean, as, as, as Katie noted, I've, I've switched entirely to iOS where it, it very much isn't a thing, but I, I assume it still works on the Mac. I, I do miss some of my little dog cow folders and, and that kind of thing. I, uh, maybe I hope, I hope they one, one day put those back into the iOS folder so I can customize them again. Yeah, it, it's lost a lot of the whimsy over the years. <laughs> that That was part of it. It has become a lot more functional, uh, although there's something to be said for giving you fewer things to mess around with and procrastinate with. 
So you went to school originally to be a computer scientist. Did you have any or you, to study computer science? Did did you have any idea at that time what you wanted to do with computers? Because that was that was still you know fairly not real early days for computers, but you know I, iOS and and really mobile and portable computing w was not that much of a thing back then. Uh, no, not at all. Um, I, I, I at high school, which for me was in the nineties, uh, I was initially interested in physics, and I was going to be going to university to do a physics degree. But one of the subjects that I carried through my education uh, was computing science, and my interests just shifted. And I actually had already applied to and been accepted to university for physics at the end of what uh, in, in Scotland is your, your fifth year when you're approximately sort of 16 to 17 years of age you do a big important set of examinations and that's when you apply to university and get your acceptance or otherwise when you've still got a full year of high school left to go usually um, but I spent that full year of high school further pursuing uh, what we called computing science and uh, decided to reapply and you know take a, a hopefully go for a career in Programming. I started off with joint psychology and computing science as a joint degree at university, which became useful in terms of designing user interfaces and interactions later on. But for the honours part of the degree, which is the latter two out of four years here in that case, uh, it was purely uh, computing science and it just turned straight into software development jobs and ultimately, as I say, uh, consultancy. The writing sort of grew organically out of just blogging about a lot of that stuff on the side, gradually gaining an audience, uh, being asked to write pieces for magazines, and it just came out of that. The The writing part of it uh, wasn't anything that was at all planned. It just happened along the side. And as the, the sort of years rolled past, I came to realise that the hobby was the thing I wanted to do as a job and and vice versa. Yeah, it's funny how those things sneak up on you, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's even the case of that you were doing the wrong thing, but but rather that you you have changed and the right thing for you is now different than it used to be. That's very much how I felt because I don't regret for a moment all the years of software engineering and, and interface design and writing about technology and obsessively uh, watching every WWDC keynote and all the videos and and tweaking and customizing and playing I, I loved it all um and it's, very, it's still a part of me i still think in that sort of systematic way uh but it's not something in terms of the, the programming that i would want to go back to now yeah my wife always makes reference to the fact that your life is a series of seasons and you know as you move into a new season you shouldn't you know resent the old one it's just time to change and it sounds like that's what happened to you Absolutely. Yeah. I think the important thing is not to feel that you have to um, justify why you moved away from the previous thing, uh, because it was just right for you at that particular time. And that's just no longer the case in this next part of your life. And I think that's absolutely fine. So now as a guy who does a lot of or, or did a lot of user interface design, does that does that still like weigh on you? I, every user interface designer I know looks at every app and it's hard for them to accept it a lot of times. They're like, ah, I would have done this so much differently. Do you ever, do you still have that, uh, those feelings? God, yes. It's a curse. You can't switch <laughs> it's hard. off. You, <laughs> yeah. you can't, you can't just look at anything and just use the damn thing. It's an automatic critique. Um, it's the same with writing and fairness. You can't look at anything without copy editing 
and cringing a, a you know a missed apostrophe or a, a superfluous apostrophe or something uh, and i think everyone's like that to some extent but oh yeah very much i can't look past any interface where something is even either from a design point of view is misaligned or something is labeled unintuitively or the workflow is too convoluted uh, it causes me a a sort of psychic pain and i don't think that'll ever change <laughs> Well, something you did that a lot of tech writers aspire to do is you also expanded out of technology. And, and for the audience, this is the, the dirty secret. Tech writers are like grist for the mill. I, 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 um, I did some tech writing for a big publishing company, and I got the impression that they really didn't care who was writing the books. And generally, tech books are relevant for a year or two, and then they're going to get somebody else to write the next one. Um, but that's not true for novelists. And somehow you made that transition. Well, I'd, I've I've always been a passionate reader. Um, hopefully, that's true for for most people. Um, but the only time I I really ever did any writing of fiction was that phase, which I think is probably quite a common one as well. You go through in your teenage years, where you sort of, you know, you read a few too many Stephen King novels or whatever your particular thing is, or you know, J.R.R. Tolkien, and you decide I want to try some of this, and you you fire some stories there, and it never really goes. Uh, you know, any further than that. Uh, I did that for years, but then university came along and real life and work, and it's, it's very easy to lose sight of that stuff. And it was a, a passion that was only awakened uh, just sort of by stealth and coincidentally as I started doing more and more writing related to technology and remembering how much I enjoyed the sort of the act of crafting words and thinking how they're going to be interpreted and reaching people in that way uh, and it, it was just it was just a gradual awakening over the course of months or maybe a year or two uh, that it was something I wanted to pick back up and I did so just in the you know those mythical three hours that we all have so many of uh, and eventually decided well I'm old enough now uh, I'm going to I'm going to actually try and make a go of this uh, for a few years. And that was, uh, what was it, January 2014, I think it was, that I just sort of closed my consultancy business and started doing this full time. And as, as they say, I have never looked back. But you're also underneath it all, Matt, you're still a geek. You still uh, are interested in the technology. And that's one of the things we wanted to talk to you about today. And and I encourage everyone to go over to Matt's blog at mattgemmel.com at two M's and two L's. Um, the uh, One of the things that you've done that, that's interesting is after being a lifetime Mac user, you basically stopped being a Mac user at this point. You don't, do you have a Mac? I have a Mac uh, sitting right in front of me just now simply because uh, obviously we need to be talking here on Skype whilst I also record my end of the conversation. And that's something that I believe is not possible on iOS just at the moment, that sort of dual routing of a single audio stream. So I have dug out the dusty uh, 2015 12-inch Retina MacBook that was my uh, most recent and I believe final ever Mac. Uh, so it's sitting here. I gave it a good chance to update itself at the weekend, which took quite a wee while. Uh, and it's it's still a lovely little thing. I had to partially relearn how to use macOS, to be honest. I'm so used to iOS full time now. Uh, I, I mean, I still love macOS. It's um, my favorite of the desktop operating systems by far. And I have so much history with the uh, Mac. And it's, I mean, looking up to the top left hand corner of the screen and seeing that little Apple logo 
it still gives that that warm feeling from back when it was those flat multiple colors in system six yeah <laughs> but the uh but you've switched over largely to ios at this point i made the switch in november of 2016 uh, so i i mean as i say i had to literally take the macbook out of a drawer for today i work f absolutely full-time uh, on an ipad pro currently the the 10.5 inch from the middle of last year. Now, did you make a conscious decision to decide, I, I, I want to switch to the iPad, or is this something, and, and so therefore I'm going to put the Mac away and I'm going to force myself to do everything on the iPad, or did you just decide over time that you were using the Mac less and less and less, and it's just something that, that naturally happened? It was a little bit of both. Um, I, when I made the decision to uh, stop the software development and uh, write full time, I naturally just continued using the equipment that I had. But that was a setup that was designed for software development and testing on iOS devices. So it was a massive 27 inch iMac plus a big external monitor plugged in as well. There was a Wacom uh, tablet because I found it a lot easier on the wrists to use that. Uh, I extended keyboards. I had the big USB hub with loads of cables coming out of it so I could multiple iOS devices to test on. And it was just this gigantic wall of, of technology. And I no longer had Xcode running or any development stuff. So just sitting, floating like it was in the middle of the ocean at the center of this gigantic screen, there was just a text document that I was typing into. And uh, at some point, it just struck me how absurd that was and how shackled I felt to this this kind of previous life so it was at that point that I started what would eventually turn out to be my transition to iOS by moving to a MacBook and uh, I think I had an old MacBook Air the 11 inch at that time and then got the newer MacBook the the, the 12 inch Retina one with its uh, slightly questionable keyboard uh, and I, I kept using that but I I, I just became aware, I became more and more conscious of how much nursing I felt I had to do for macOS. There, was, there were a lot of little rough edges that had never bothered me before when I was in a development mindset because programming is all about little bits of friction and rough edges and use cases and debugging and errors and all that kind of stuff. You, you just deal with it. Whereas writing is about focus and about having as little extraneous stuff as possible and it just started to annoy me that things like some apps are on the app store so they get updated automatically some apps aren't so you have to launch them and update them they've got their you know their sparkle updater embedded in them and so on and so on and so on there are so many widgets in the menu bar and it just seemed like such a such a manual process for a lot of stuff and i just wanted to use something simpler I hadn't had an iPad of my own since the iPad uh, third generation, I think it was. Uh, the third generation Retina iPad, so it was really old. Yeah, that was, I think, the last one with the dock connector. I think you're right, yes, indeed. Um, because I'd been doing very solely iPhone-focused dev for a while, so the iPads had gotten out of date. Uh, and I, I wasn't even really conscious of them. I would skip the iPad-related parts of keynotes that I, would wa I was watching. That's the truth of it for that last sort of year or two. And it occurred to me, um, maybe what I actually want is a, an iOS device. So I started looking into where iOS for the iPad was. It hadn't come on very uh, 
terribly far at that point. It still felt like a big iPhone, as in just a literally a scaled up iPhone interface with some different layouts. They hadn't really taken advantage of the, the the kind of work potential of the iPad. And of course, this was before we found out all that magnificent stuff that's come in in iOS 11 that's iPad specific. Uh, all the keyboard shortcut stuff, obviously the dock, the drag and drop, the revamped uh, app switcher interface that preserves uh, groupings of apps for split view, etc, etc, etc. Um, it's wonderful, but I, what, I, what I did immediately feel was, yes, this is the simple, unified, focused interface that I need. So I thought, I'm just going to commit to this. And that's where, Katie, that's the sort of second part of it, that I made a conscious decision, I'm going to do this. So I walked into the Apple store, um, which we're fortunate to have one of uh, up here in, in on Princess Street here in Edinburgh. Picked up an iPad Pro at the time, it was the 9.7 inch one. This was, uh, as I say, November 2016, so it was a uh, sort of seven, seven or eight months, I think, before the 10.5 inch came out. I bought it, I bought an Apple Pencil, I just kept my Apple uh, Magic Keyboard that I already had, and I made a list of all the things that I needed to do uh, that I, I typically did on the Mac and that I didn't yet know how to do on iOS and I just for the next few months uh, each weekend or so I would dedicate myself to uh, translating those workflows onto iOS and I would write a blog post usually each time I found a acceptable and effective workflow and over time I just checked them all off and it has been at least a year now since there's been anything on that list I do literally everything on the iPad Pro. You know, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. I recently had an audio problem on my, it was an audio driver problem on my Mac. And I spent like two hours fixing the problem. And then I stood up and looked at my iPad and realized I've never had to spend two hours fixing a problem on any iOS device. <laughs> you know, they, they, by their nature, you just reboot the device if something's not working and usually that fixes it. And that's basically the troubleshooting scheme. It's true. It's true. It's, I mean, there's also, there's also a certain, uh, there's a certain sort of freedom of constraint on iOS as well. Um, with the Mac, there's pretty much always a way to do something, whether it's grabbing some app or, you know, maybe tweaking a setting on the terminal or, or installing some, you know, making a macro or whatever it is. It's such a huge, complex, freeform, open, capable, powerful thing that you can do almost anything you want. Whereas in iOS, there's actually a sort of liberation from the fact that there's certain things that just aren't possible, so you'd better just go on with something else instead. And as someone who now has absurdly simple technological requirements compared to what I wanted to do before. I mean, I just need to write text and transform it into some kind of publishable form and get it out there. Uh, I'm able to just let go of so much of the stuff I used to enjoy tweaking and fiddling with and playing with and just actually do the work that I want to do. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Timing, the automatic time tracking app for Mac OS. Go to timingapp.com slash MPU and get 10% off your purchase. 
I'm hearing from a lot of listeners that are getting religion about the idea of tracking their time. Now, I'm not talking about time tracking like I did as a lawyer for so many years, where you just track the time you spend on individual clients, but a more holistic kind of time tracking, where you take a look at how you're spending all of your time on your electronic devices and finding out where those productivity sucks are. And we all have them. The problem is with most traditional time trackers, you've got to go and physically throw a switch or a button every time you switch tasks. And we're bad at that. Every time I try to do it with a manual time tracker, I inevitably end up with, you know, 17 hours spent checking email because I did a quick check of the email the evening before and forgot to turn it off before I went to bed. Timing app solves that problem for you. Timing app installs on your Mac and just takes a look at how you're using your Mac and categorizes it for you and gives you data without you having to think about it at all. It works in the background. And best of all, they've got a brand new version out that allows you to synchronize that data between multiple Macintosh computers. So if you've got a laptop and a desktop, you're going to have way better data now. This new synchronization service is also very useful if you have just one Mac because it gives you a way to have an offsite backup of your data. If your Mac, you know, falls off a truck, you get a new one, you can resync your data from the synchronization database and just keep going. Over the last year, I've come to really rely on time tracking to help me find the problems in my life that need solving. Nobody's perfect at sitting down on their Mac and just working. Using a tool like Timing, you will also find your productivity rabbit holes. So if you're a Setup subscriber, you're already good. You can go into Setup and download Timing App today. If not, head over to timingapp.com MPU. It's a great company. If you go to that link, you'll get 10% off and start saving your time today. You know what you were saying before the break about um, just using it to get work done. We had a guest on the show a year or two ago, Ian Bird, who is an, an educator and a teacher. And he was talking about how switching to the iPad gave him the ability to say, anything I can't do on my iPad, I'm going to hire someone to do for me. Because anything that I would need my Mac for turns out being busy work. So he was using an assistant plus his iPad. It, it's just interesting to me the way a lot of people go on this journey. I think for some people, it's like a stunt, especially in the early days. They'd say, well, I'm just going to use the iPad. I, I did kind of a stunt like that when I first wrote the iPad at workbook for Wiley years ago. And the, um, but the, for a lot of other people, it's, it's something you just discover one day, that's what you're doing. So you go with it. And it seems to me you're kind of in that second category. I think so. Um, I will also say that I, I did the stunt as well. You know, when the, when the iPad initially came out, I, I vividly remember the keynote and, and Steve Jobs was sitting in the armchair using the thing rather than standing up on the stage. You remember that? Yeah. Um, yeah. And Apple sent me one over uh, earlier than it was released in the UK. And I was, I was thrilled with this thing. And I saw its potential in terms of what it could become, which I think is a lot closer to now, but it most certainly was not back then and I did that sort of intellectual contortionism to try and believe I could use it as my full-time machine and it simply wasn't up to that at the time uh, partly because of the apps mostly because of limitations in the operating system uh, so I mean I did that stuff as well but this time I, I did it more honestly I, as I say I literally made a list of this is the stuff I need to do and the way the list was initially titled uh, sorry was, was categorised was 
stuff I need to do at least once a month, stuff I need to do at least once a week, stuff I need to do daily. So I was trying to determine how long I could go without using a Mac. And as I ticked things off from that list and found new iOS-based workflows, it went from having to use the Mac maybe once a week at the weekend to maybe once a month to maybe once every six months or once per year. And then suddenly I'm not using it anymore at all. And I still have the list with a, with a bunch of stuff checked off it. And it's genuinely true that I do now live completely on the iPad and of course the iPhone as well. What were some of the most difficult items to check off? It was, uh, it's mostly workflow uh, related stuff in terms of processing text for other purposes. Um, I do all of my writing in the same app, uh, Ulysses, which I, I'm, sh- I'm sure many, uh, many of your listeners have, have encountered. But uh, some of that text is novels, uh, which then needs to be published via uh, print-on-demand services and the various online ebook stores like Apple iBooks and Amazon Kindle, etc. But some of it goes to my blog, uh, which uses uh, its markdown files going into a static site generator called Jekyll running on my own server. Some of it goes into weekly newsletters because my site has a membership program where people are essentially patrons of my writing and that needs to go to the email list distribution service called uh, MailChimp, which again, I'm sure you're familiar with. So they all need they all need different processing and put into different templates and so on. So there's a bit of sort of techie stuff going on there with Markdown translation, using templates, putting in some CSS, talking to servers, etc., etc. And uh, I used to do that I mean, you could use anything you wanted on the Mac to do that. You could use a lot of macro utilities natively. You could use the shell with any scripting language you preferred. And it was a matter of finding ways to do that stuff uh, on the iPad in a satisfactory way. There are far more options for it these days than there were even a year and a half ago. Uh, The thing I've settled on uh, lately is the new version of Drafts. Uh, I wonder if you're familiar with it. Drafts 5 has not been out for too long. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and that's really my my uh, go to thing at the moment. So it's lots of JavaScript and you know talking to servers and all that kind of stuff. So that that was it was a matter of just finding out what was possible. Interapp communication tends to be the the problematic part of any workflow on iOS, but even that's got so much better. The thing about drafts is that you know it started out a simple app. You add text very easily. You just open it up, you type in text, and then you perform an action on it. But over the years, Greg has added so much depth to the application. Like now, you can go in and do JavaScript in the background and all these power tools. And a lot of people don't even realize that's there because he doesn't, you know, smash it in your face. But it's there. So people like you are doing these amazing things with it while other people are still just using it to write text messages and super happy with it. It's a it's an interesting app that it can straddle the line. Yeah, it's interesting how sort of stratified the user base can become with them, probably people at both ends of it and not really being aware of the use cases of people at the opposite end. What are some of the other challenges you face like in the day to day stuff as you as a writer switching over to iPad? Well, uh, there was a there was a rather large issue for me was the um, the need to produce uh, ebooks in, in the the EPUB uh, format, which is the industry standard format uh, natively on the iPad. The app I'd been using for writing on the Mac was, of course, the fantastic Scrivener by Literature and Latte, 
Um, it's a magnificent writing app. Uh, it's absolutely built from the ground up for people writing long form, mostly fiction, also uh, also nonfiction, and it's got a sort of screenplay mode as well. It's magnificent. Um, what it didn't have at the time was uh, an iOS version, which has since come out uh, and is wonderful. But one of the things the iOS version doesn't do is actually generate EPUBs natively. Uh, I had also noticed in parallel with that that I was pretty much always working in Markdown except when I was writing fiction. Scrivener isn't a Markdown environment, it's a rich text environment like uh, Word or, or text edit or pages or whatever. Um, and so I was having that sort of mode switch and I'd been wanting to try out Ulysses for years but it never really clicked for me. And I, I, I suppose the planets just aligned all at the same time when I saw that um, Ulysses could be my central repository for everything. I could produce fiction from it while still writing in Markdown and that the, the mobile version of it on the iPad and on the iPhone could produce all of the formats I needed. Uh, PDFs for uh, the print master for print-on-demand paperbacks, but also EPUBs ready to go onto the, the various online bookstores. So I was making a, a transition of my computing platform at the same time uh, I was transitioning my major writing tool. So it was sort of two traumas at once. And I, th I think it actually made it easier to do it almost at the same time. Yeah. I mean, Ulysses is powerful, but lightweight, if that makes sense. And it's a great app. Go ahead and tell us how you implemented it. You know, how are how have you set it up and, and how are you using Ulysses? Uh, I've got a, a, a bunch of sort of categories at the top level. Uh, everyone's got their own organization system that just works for them. I've got one uh, sort of top level category for the blog, one for the newsletters that I talked about. Uh, I've got a journal and then I've got all my fiction. And what, what I write uh, primarily at the moment is a thriller series. So I've got those there, including the, the, the book I'm currently working on. And I, I subdivide that into all the various things you need uh, for a book. There's, 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 there's so much. There's the front matter and the, the copyright, the dedication, the actual manuscript itself, notes, research, character sheets, locations, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I use uh, keywords extensively to track various things. And of course, Ulysses Lake Scrivener has got uh, goal tracking, so you can set a target word count and or finish date for the project and it sort of keeps you on track and you see how you're going uh, and I, I just do absolutely all of my writing there no matter where it's going and if it's for the blog or for the members newsletters then I jump out to drafts and use some of the scripts I've got there to make sure the stuff gets transformed in the right way now, as a former UI designer, do you ever fall down the rabbit hole in Ulysses of setting up uh, custom themes or all those themes they have available for it? I think you probably already know the answer to that. Of course I have. Of course I have. <laughs> I mean, as, as as a writer, I desperately need to find creative new methods of procrastination on a weekly basis. Yeah, and so, you've taken away so many by getting off the Mac. So exactly. what are you doing? So I need, I need to roll some of my own. So yeah, no, I've got my custom Ulysses theme and everything. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful if I do say so myself. Although naturally, there are more tweaks I want to make at some point. You know, Scrivener uh, famously has a lot of tools for novel writers, like, you know, um, specific tools for character development. And I, I mean, that's one of the things I really admire about that app is it's such a tool for novelists. Um, how did that, I mean, did you miss some of that as you moved from Scrivener to Ulysses? 
What I what I found happened, and this is kind of a microcosm of the entire process of switching from the Mac to iOS for me, is that I was forced to evaluate what I actually needed versus the stuff that I just kept around because it was comfortable or I felt I might one day use but actually never did. So um, the Scrivener to Ulysses transition was just a slightly smaller scale mirror of the Mac to iOS. You discover what you don't actually use and you just leave it behind organically. I recreated some of the things that Scrivener does like, as you say, the character sheets just in, in Markdown and plain text in Ulysses. But I pretty much just shaved off so much of it and was honest with myself about what I wasn't using. It's remarkable what you can get by with and also it sort of helps you to focus more by not having to look at all of these millions of panels and panes and, and tab bars and icons and pop-up menus and all of that stuff. On the odd occasion that I go back to the Mac to do something, uh, for example, this afternoon getting set up for for speaking to you, it's incredible the amount of visual weight there is with all of the little icons in the status bar and the sheer number of menu options, it just feels heavy and, and sort of fiddly and fragile to me. And I fully appreciate how how strange that must sound. And I, I, I reiterate that I'm an enormous Mac fan and I've been a lifelong Mac user and I absolutely love the machines and the platform and the history and all of it. Uh, but these days I just find it very heavy. And I think I, I, would, I would have to say the same about going back to the Scrivener interface, which I have to do once in a while because the first book in the series that I'm writing was written in Scrivener on the Mac and that's where I go back to in the very rare event that I need to push out a new edition or something. Uh, so I'm able to look at the two side by side and it's such a, a relief and a sort of release of tension in my shoulders uh, to come back to the much simpler, more spartan, more focused interface of iOS. It's just It's just quieter and there's less stuff to be troubled by. So other than, uh, we've talked quite a bit about Ulysses, what other tools are you using for your writing workflow in terms of getting ready to write and, and those types of things? Uh, there are a number of fantastic tools uh, on iOS that I, I use. Uh, the ones I keep in my dock include, um, I mean, I won't mention the social media apps that I keep in my dock. Of course, you know, we all do. I primarily use Omni Outliner uh, and uh, an app called GoodNotes, which is a fantastic app to use if you've got an Apple Pencil, uh, by the way. One of the first things I do before writing a book is I outline it extensively. Uh, I learned the hard way uh, trying to dive into writing a novel without having a full outline first that that approach just isn't for me. Uh, some writers, absolutely, they can't just jump in and pants it as they say they are pantsers uh, it turns out that I thought I was but I'm not I need structure so on the outliner is fantastic for that whether you're on the Mac or on iOS there just is no better outlining application particularly if you're someone who's used to using the keyboard for everything for the keyboard shortcuts making new items moving stuff in and out of the hierarchy I need good keyboard shortcuts that's part of my legacy as a, a Mac user and a pretty sort of intense Mac power user if an app doesn't have good keyboard shortcut support, I can't use it because it physically pains me to use the mouse or the trackpad or an iOS to constantly be touching the screen. You need to do a fair bit of that on iOS compared to the Mac, but I also need the keyboard to work well. And there just is no better outlining application than Omni Outliner. I couldn't live without that. So I outline the entire thing. Uh, firstly, a very 
high level and then progressively refine down and down and down and down and down until it's thousands of lines long. And that's when I recreate that structure as a skeleton of empty documents in Ulysses and start writing through. Um, good notes that I mentioned is a, a note-taking app. It's akin to, it's a little bit like Apple Notes. It's like Notability as well, which is the major competitor. Uh, it's sort of digital ink. You can use it for annotating documents or creating them. People use it to take notes in a sort of academic lecture context. I know uh, some structural mechanical engineers that use it as their sort of draft paper. Uh, it's fantastic. What I use it for is sketching out the ebb and flow of uh, the main plot, character arcs within the plot and where the conflict is. I also mark into that timeline where the major plot reveals or twists are. Uh, and I, I use colour coding sort of shading to mark the shift in points of view to make sure that the story doesn't dwell on a particular character's point of view for too long before switching because then the, the story can seem to sort of be, to sag or to lag from the reader's perspective. Uh, I also use something called Mind Node, uh, which is a mind mapping app as the name implies. Uh, it's very beautiful, it's got a gorgeous clean interface. Uh, version 5.x is the latest one which revamped the, the UI quite a lot. It really is lovely and, and simple to look at, but powerful behind the scenes. I use that for things like word association uh, and, and word clouds to get a feeling for themes and how they all weave together to figure out what the story is about. And I do that between the outlining and, and actually starting to write phase. Uh, I've obviously mentioned drafts, uh, which I use as my text processing tool, my sort of BB edit on the iPad, as it were. I miss BB edit every single day. I love it so much. It's my favorite Mac application of them all. Um, and when you've used Xcode for so many years, you, you really, really appreciate BB edit. Uh, I wish there was an iPad version, but draft is what, what I use at the moment. And then for productivity stuff, I used uh, things uh, version three, which uh, came out a few months ago as a massive rewrite of the sort of long time languishing application, I would have to say. It's got a beautiful, clean interface, bang up to date. And with a fairly recent update, it again has introduced just world-class keyboard shortcuts. It's probably the most keyboard navigable, uh, keyboard power user friendly app that's on the iPad right now, even including anything from Apple themselves. I think those are the, the main ones that I use every single day. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by the Omni Group. You can learn more about the entire Omni productivity suite by heading over to omnigroup.com. So it's summertime, and for a lot of us, that's the time where we start working on some of the projects that we've put away. Maybe you've got a little extra time on your hands. Maybe you're taking a vacation. Maybe it's the perfect time to start working on your next big idea. And anytime I've got a big idea cooking, the first place I start is with a great outline. And I always reach for Omni Outliner. You can pick up Omni Outliner for Mac or for iOS, and their latest versions of the apps are better than ever. Both Mac and iOS versions of Omni Outliner come with an Essential and a Pro version. Essential has everything you need to get started, including beautiful themes, drag and drop support, document syncing, the ability to export your outlines to Microsoft Word or PDF, and a whole lot more. It focuses on helping you create simply beautiful outlines full of functionality. And if you want more, then you can upgrade to the Pro version. Pro version brings you additional features like Omni Automation, 
password encryption, the ability to add audio recordings, custom themes, and a whole lot more. And better than ever, you can get started for free. Both the Omni Outliner versions for Mac and iOS come with fully functional 14-day free trials, so you can try before you buy to see which version of Omni Outliner is going to be right for you. And when you're ready to get started, it has never been easier. The Essentials version of Omni Outliner starts at just $9.99, so it has never been easier for anyone to create really awesome outlines. And if you decide you need more power, no problem. Just upgrade to Omni Outliner Pro. The folks at Omni have made this easier than ever to do. So learn more, head over to omnigroup.com, download your free trial of Omni Outliner for Mac or iOS or both, and get started on that project today. Thanks to Omni Group for your kind support of Mac Power users. All right, Matt, you gave us a lot of uh, a lot of tidbits um, in that last section. We we hit a bunch of apps rapid fire. I do want to back up and uh, if we can dive dive deep on a few of those. Some of those we've we've covered on on Mac Power users quite a bit, uh, but some of them that you you hit we've we've touched on only briefly, or um, we've had uh, listeners ask us about them um, even further. Um, one that I do want to make sure that we we hit on a little bit deeper is is things because I we've talked a lot about task management on Mac Power users. I think we're going to talk a little, about it a little bit more in in the future. Um, but tell me a little bit about things and how that fits in your workflow in terms of uh, getting things done and and tracking tasks. Okay, um, so things is uh, the simplest sort of way to describe it is it's a checklist type to do app um that description does it a bit of a disservice uh but it is gorgeous simple to look at i think it, it uses the the ios standard system for in san francisco uh, whatever it is i think a close cousin of uh, helvetica um and it has uh just checklists but that 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 description belies its depth and its power it also has uh projects and categories and you can assign uh times and dates and reminders uh, for each for each task you can create recurring reminders of course it also has this concept of uh, stuff that's due today and stuff that's due this evening so it has these sort of these sort of special categories that are they are floating in that today's tasks will of course shift over if you don't finish them before the actual current day has finished but there's also this evening thing so you can sort of mark something as to be deferred you can mark tasks as uh, someday i believe that's the terminology it uses which makes them a bit visually subdued in the interface it doesn't really push them up to the top of any of the lists they're still basically there but they are sort of deprioritized um and it has this this lovely thing that i particularly appreciate whereby there's a sidebar uh on the, the iPad at least, uh, which lists all of the projects and categories. And there's a ring beside each one, which sort of gradually fills up like a pie chart as you tick off all the various things. Um, it Things have been around for years. The company's called Cultured Code, which, I mean, many, many, many uh, of the listeners will be familiar with. Things uh, was was hugely successful when it, when it came out, the initial version, but there was a a perception that it took quite a long time for any meaningful updates to come out and it had languished languished for quite a while before it seemed all of a sudden uh, version 3 was then released um, and I had I've flirted with every conceivable task management application over the years I, I don't know if you're the same as me but I've never found anything that felt 
like it quite hit my my sort of niche not even use case but just it just scratched my particular itch i was never quite happy with you know ad hoc checklist things in apple notes or uh, doing things in apple reminders or calendar events or even omni focus which is incredible i just felt that was a little too complex for my needs it was a bit too much interface it was a bit too sort of formally managed um but i tried them all and i used them all i never found something that really clicked for me until i uh, got my hands on version three of things uh, so what I, what I use it for is I essentially split everything into work and home, whereby home is is just the, sort of the, the, the various administration and stuff related to you know, living your life, everything from shopping lists to holiday packing to DIY, etc., etc. My work is everything to do with books, plus uh, promotion, the website, uh all kinds of things, everything from uh, switching to SSL to preparing new paperback versions, managing cover design uh, projects, uh, and everything I'm currently writing, uh, all goes into things. And what uh, one nice feature that Things has as well is that it can display the events you've got coming up from the system calendar as well. So it doesn't it doesn't become a sort of silo which the Reminders app does tend to be. If you're in there, you're not really seeking anything else. Things lets you see both types of thing uh, at the same time. And they have a beautiful iOS app. I think it's it's one of the best-looking apps on iPad and iPhone. As a UI designer, that's got to appeal. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's, it's lovely. It's just like that sort of digital paper look to it. It gets completely out of your way, but it's got all these gorgeous little subtle animations. You can start typing anywhere to initiate a search. Uh, there's a, a lovely uh, selection interface for multi-row select, including non-contiguous items. There's just so much polish and, and love and passion that has obviously been put into it. It's very much got that Apple ethos. Uh, and that's something that just delights me every time I use it because I think someone has, or, or rather a lot of someone's, have, have clearly poured their soul into this thing. And that makes it more enjoyable to use. I feel like the, the universe has like an almost unlimited capacity for taskless apps and email apps because there's no single app that that totally satisfies anybody that thinks about this stuff. It's completely true. And that will remain true for however long humanity is making <laughs> software and to-do lists. No matter what form it takes, there will never be that perfect to-do list for everybody. But I seem to have at least temporarily found one that suits me. Yeah, one of the things you had said in passing earlier as well is that you do this this you know thousand line outline and omni outliner and then you transition it over to Ulysses. Now, do you automate that process or do you hand I mean, because and for the listeners, I'm assuming what you mean by transition is you make kind of the text buckets and Ulysses for each element of the story in the outline. Is that what you do? Yes, but I, I, I do it in a sort of iterative way. Um, I create the high level structure, which for me, I, I, I use parts in novels. So it's prologue, part one, part two, part three, epilogue, uh, and the, the standard structure whereby the first part or act is about 25%. The second uh, act is about 50% of your total words uh, count target. And the final uh, act is the, the remaining 25%. And then I'll make the sort of sub buckets just for major scenes in the first part. Now, I don't write to chapters. I What I do is I think in terms of scenes, 
uh, and I write those scenes and then only later when I finish writing an entire act will I then group scenes together into chapters because I, I don't really have a, a good sense, a good feel for where the chapter breaks are going to lie until I've seen how all the, the scenes have played out. Uh, which is, maybe that's an interesting tidbit. So I write the scenes first. So what I do is I create those empty text buckets um, for the part that I'm currently writing and then I just, I do it manually. I grab the, the outline from Omni Outliner uh, and copy it across, paste it into Ulysses and then I start writing towards the first bullet point, if you understand. You know, I, I can see the first one right there beneath. I make space above, start writing towards it and check it off. And a nice feature that Ulysses has, which which Scrivener has as well, is that at any point when you're writing, you can choose to split the current, uh, what Ulysses calls it a sheet. Uh, you refer to it as a sort of text bucket. I think Scrivener calls it a document. The current sort of file, you can split it into a new one and anything that was beneath the point at which you initiated the split goes into the new one. So I can carry the remaining notes over into the next document, which is exactly what you want because you're writing straight down through an outline, hitting the points as you go. And I just keep going that way until I've exhausted that portion of the outline and then I grab the next bit and so on. So I've written tech books and in those you have the advantage once it's outlined, you can write it from the inside out. You can jump all over the place and write stuff and it doesn't matter. But with a novel, I would assume, do you have to write linearly? It's yes and no. I mean, I, everyone has their own approach. I can only speak for myself, of course. Um, I just have found uh, my own experience has been that the anything later is so consequentially connected to that which comes earlier that you're just essentially giving yourself an additional editing or revising task by trying to jump about. A largely linear approach works pretty well for me, although I'll, I'll qualify that by saying that if, some, if a scene just isn't coming together and I'm really having trouble with it, not sure where it's going, and I know that there's a scene coming up relatively soon that is clearer in my mind or that I'm looking forward to writing more, I do let myself leap ahead because it then gives me something to then go back and write towards. It gives that little extra push, that little extra bit of enthusiasm. But what I wouldn't do is leap you know, 25% ahead and do things back and forth because reintegrating it all and ensuring that you've not created continuity problems is just going to become a nightmare. I remember uh, reading an article of an interview of J.K. Rawlings of Harry Potter fame, and she said at one point she wrote the last chapter of the last book like years in advance because as she was putting the characters through all this misery, she would just go and read that once in a while to remind herself that it would get better at the end. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that. Yeah, she finished um, the the last book of the of the of the series uh, at the Balmoral Hotel here in Edinburgh again, just up in Princess Street, straight across the street from where my wife works and that's where she did it i can understand doing that most certainly but of course as i assume your readers know no spoilers that scene you're talking about takes place substantially in the future so it's pretty independent of everything that comes before so it's kind of a special case yeah the um and the other thing i think about is research i mean like with scrivener i always am able to incorporate research into the writing document but ulysses doesn't really do that do you use a lot of research in your writing and if so how do you manage that on your ipad 
I use a fair bit of research. Um, I write thrillers, so the context is pretty much, you know, elite covert special forces team uh, chase through Europe, that kind of thing. So the sort of stuff I tend to need to research uh, primarily is locations, uh, European languages, translations, etc. And of course, uh, weaponry, vehicles, and occasionally bits of exotic science, because the, the sort of... Uh, the, the twist and the kick for my series is that it involves uh, situations a bit out of the normal, out of you know, out of the ordinary. So it's um, fringe science, occasionally the paranormal, within that thriller context. So there's a fair bit of research, yes, and I do have to do quite a lot of it. In Scrivener, as you say, there's a sort of dedicated subsection of each project for research, and you can put any kind of file in there. You might want whether it's images, PDFs, web links, and so on. Ulysses being a markdown text file based application, it doesn't let you throw in just anything. But there is metadata associated with each sheet or text bucket um, in Ulysses. So you can add some text notes that are entirely separate and from the main document and they appear in the sidebar. You can actually add an image in. And of course, there's keywords for categorization as well. Um, the vast majority of my research is text-based anyway, so I keep that in a separate sort of subfolder of the primary project folder. Um, and anything that I need to keep that won't go in, such as PDFs, I just put it in a, a folder in iCloud and refer to it as I need to. But I, I virtually never uh, require to. The, the, when you think of it in terms of it's all going to be turned into text, uh, eventually, I, I sort of do the research, kind of create a distillation or a precy of what I've uh, assimilated from that, write out some notes in the same way as if you're studying something in a university lecture, write out your own little version of it. And that's the research that I keep in Ulysses ready to integrate when I get to that particular point. The one, the one type of image I keep tends to be location photos. Um, I try to visit as many of the, of the locations uh, as I can myself and I'll keep them right inside the scene so that I can pop open that sidebar and sort of get the flavor for it and do the descriptions there. If, if um, as someone who is, is a computer scientist, obviously opinionated on this stuff and now using the iOS full time, uh, just, I'd like to talk a little about the stock apps, you know, Apple mail, Apple calendar, and some of those um, as a computer scientist, are you happy with those apps? Have you moved on to other alternatives? You know, how are you getting that stuff done? Yeah, I mean, I periodically flirt, of course, uh, with every alternative that comes along. Uh, you, you, you rightly said that besides uh, task list to-do applications, email clients is the other one that everyone has a billion versions of and nothing is ever completely right. Uh, I actually always come back to the stock apps. Um, my approach is I want to keep things as simple as possible. I want to have as few points of failure as possible. I want to have as few things to set up again on a new machine, even though iCloud Restore makes that all pretty easy. Um, and I want things to work exactly the same way between the iPad and the iPhone. So I largely use the stock stuff. I use uh, Apple Mail. I use Safari as my web browser. Uh, I do, in fairness, use Fantastical on the iPad as my calendar app, just because I love the natural language uh, event input and the way it sort of parses it all out and animates it all into place it's absolutely gorgeous uh, for the most part i stick with the the standard stuff i feel a, a resistance towards 
getting another custom third party app for a basic piece of functionality. I, I don't know if I can articulate why. Uh, I guess I just sort of, I, I want less stuff to fiddle with, honestly. That's an entirely separate question, of course, from whether I'm happy with them because the stock apps tend to lag behind third party apps quite understandably in terms of adopting the you know fancy new features or industry trends in terms of user interface. Um, it takes Apple a long time to do that and I can certainly see why. Mail, um, in terms of the app I use most often but also have the most annoyances with, it would probably have to be Mail. I certainly don't need any of the features like the things you see in email clients these days like snoozing messages for a few hours or having a, an almost sort of iMessage text chat like interface or automatic replies. I don't need any of that stuff. I don't use any of it. I don't want it. But mail does still have the occasional hiccup just simply talking to Gmail or it'll sit and say checking mail for 10 minutes when I know there's exactly one email coming in that I need to see right now. Uh, it still annoys me a little bit. I had dinner with one of the engineers that works on it uh, the other day and it took a great deal of politeness for me not to bring the subject up. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. When you talk to the, to the gang at Apple, I had the same experience. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 feel, they feel the pain every bit as much as we do. Um, but yeah, no, it's mostly the, the stock apps for that stuff. Although, as I say, I don't really use notes as in the apple app i don't really use reminders mm -hmm. uh, my anything you would use notes for i tend to have good notes for that uh, and reminders I, I just don't use i'm using things for all of that stuff when i was at wwdc this year i met with some of the apple engineers and they started bringing up specific questions about one of their apps their apple apps that i had said on this show and i forget that you know, sometimes people on the inside listen. <laughs> and the first thing I came to mind is, oh, what did I say? What did I say on the show? But the second thing I realized is these guys, they care about every little problem with their apps just as much, if not more than us users. I mean, they're just as passionate about it as we are a lot of times. Absolutely. They want to fix all this stuff. Um, I've been in a sort of similar situation where I'll tweet something and it's perhaps been a wee bit stridently worded as a complaint and I get the emails and I get the direct messages from people at Apple and you immediately sort of, you know, you sort of, your, your muscles clench thinking, mm, perhaps I, I should have worded that a wee bit more diplomatically. But as you say, they're always coming from a position of desperately wanting to get it fixed. Is there anything in particular with iOS 12 coming just around the corner that you're excited about? Or are you perhaps already running the beta of iOS 12? Or what are your thoughts? I'm not running the beta. Um, I have I don't have a spare machine to, to, to do it. I'm liter literally paired right down to my, my work machine. So, And as you can imagine, as a, as a software developer for the iOS platform, I would always have to install the beta. So I know all of the pains. I've experienced all of it. I've done the restores and, and goodness knows what else. And I just, I need to get work done. So I don't have time for that. I would love to be playing with it. I hear that the public beta is very stable. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of anything I've heard about specifically that I'm excited about. I guess the, I believe it's called screen time for the iPhone in terms of frightening me into realizing how much time I've put into social media. And I think I will actually set time limits for Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and so on and try and be a bit more mentally healthy, I suppose, by not exposing myself to all that stuff. Because um, 
well, I mean, anything that brings the world's news to you these days can have a, a somewhat negative effect on one's happiness and motivation to work, I think. Uh, so I'm quite excited about that. In terms of new functionality, though, nothing in particular springs to mind. I'm just hoping that we're going to see more pervasive keyboard shortcut support across the OS. And I would love it if the the relatively new feature in Pages and perhaps in the rest of iWork, uh, I think it's called Smart Annotations, where you can use the Apple Pencil to annotate Pages documents. And as you edit the document, the, anno the annotations actually flow with the text. So it's a sort of sticky annotations with the uh, Apple Pencil. I'm hoping perhaps we might get an API for uh, using that in third-party apps or in even other Apple apps throughout the system. But that's just speculation. It's just my wish list. My guess is you're going to have to wait a year for that. I bet because I think they're still trying to figure it out as on the limited apps they're doing it. What about like workflow or the Siri shortcut stuff coming up? Are you using any of that automation stuff on your iOS devices? Um, I, I became a pretty heavy workflow, as in the app called Workflow uh, user when I made the switch to iOS full time because that was pretty much how you did any automation. Um, I'm a, a reader of uh, the Mac Stories website and of course Federico Fatici has been a big proponent of Workflow the app. Um, that was before it was acquired by Apple. Um, so it, I mean in principle I'm enthusiastic about that and I'm, I'm certainly always keen to find uh, new ways to, to do things and to tie the apps together. In practice I'm not actually using Workflow terribly much at the moment because I found that drafts lets me do the vast majority of the stuff that I need to. Um, I'm always one for, for more automation. Uh, they can they can add as much of that stuff as they like. Uh, I just don't currently have a particular need to do that, that sort of complex multi-app communication stuff. It kind of makes sense though, because I mean, your stock and trade is words and that's what drafts excels at. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I always tell people um, that I'm in an incredibly privileged position to be able to use functionally pretty simple apps and to be able to commit to iOS full time because I don't need to do anything that's out with the scope of the operating system or the apps available. It's, it, it really is a, a privilege to be able to walk around with this little sort of flat touch screen uh, device and just pull up what is essentially a blinking cursor and type text and have that be the thing that I do. Um, it is a very freeing thing. And if you're, if you're if you're able to do that, if you do have that that luxury, then I, I just don't think there's a better machine for it than an iPad. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you in part by Squarespace. You can learn more and save 10% off your first purchase, website, or domain by heading over to squarespace.com MPU. Make your next move with Squarespace. Squarespace lets you easily create a website for your next idea with a unique domain name and award-winning templates and a whole lot more. Whether you want to create an online store, a portfolio, a blog, regardless of your needs, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do just that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. Why would you want to worry about spending your time as a web administrator? Instead, just build your website. Squarespace has you covered. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. 
And all of those award-winning templates are beautiful designed to show off your great ideas. You don't have to worry about your Squarespace site looking like anybody else's because they are almost infinitely customizable. I've been using Squarespace for years for multiple websites that I've built for myself and for others. And I can tell you, I wouldn't use anybody else. They're easy to build. They're easier to maintain. And you don't have to worry about being a web engineer because all of the stuff just works. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial now with no credit card required by heading over to squarespace.com MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for Mac power users. So once again, that's squarespace.com MPU and the coupon code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. Thanks to Squarespace for your kind support. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So, Matt, I want to talk a little bit about some lifestyle things. I was perusing your website and saw that you were, I don't know if fitness buff is the right word, but uh, you are very into physical fitness and activity. And I was wondering what, if any, role uh, tech plays in that, given that you're a very tech guy, too. Yeah, that is a, a fair observation. Um, I, I, I do spend quite a lot of time uh working out and thinking about staying healthy. Uh, I was previously an Apple Watch owner, uh, the original one of those, and that's when I really got organised and got quite regimented about the fitness. Um, It started off, as you say, wanting to fiddle with a cool new piece of technology, and I got interested in the metrics, etc., etc., and it, it sort of coincided with that becoming a big part of my life. I'm no longer an Apple Watch user uh, I have to say we've moved on to Fitbits in the house uh, which we've had several of I've got one uh, on at the moment Uh, and I do I actually use a numbers spreadsheet to do the whole calorie counting and tracking uh, thing right the way through the week uh, all the time so it is a, a daily activity of mine to keep track of all this stuff so let's let's ask the first question about the the move from Apple Watch to to Fitbit um, what what did the Apple Watch not offer you that you were looking for? And then how do you use the Fitbit? Because we haven't talked much about Fitbit, as you can imagine, on this show. So what are the benefits there? Uh, I wouldn't say there was anything that the Apple Watch failed to offer. It was almost the opposite. Um, there's so much functionality in the thing. It's really a mini iOS device with all its little apps and so on. It's It's gone through an awful lot of fluctuations in terms of how the user interface works, which is perfectly understandable for what was then a brand new product. Uh, but the truth is, I just found the interface sort of difficult, unstable, uh, fiddly to use, I was forever accidentally triggering things or failing to trigger things that I wanted to. And the in, the initial model, the sort of Series 0, I think they call it these days, I, I believe, uh, the battery life was uh, fairly poor. Uh, I would need to do the morning workout and then charge it whilst I was in the shower, and then it would need to charge overnight, so sleep tracking was out of the question. Uh, of course, it wasn't waterproof back then, so you couldn't wear it whilst you were swimming. There are a number of sort of physical limitations, but it was, I just found the thing uh, from an interaction standpoint too difficult to use. It was that death by a thousand cuts. And whenever there's a software update, I've almost never known a machine to take so long to update its operating system. It's it's really a quite stunning amount of time. I don't know if you've ever updated an original series Apple Watch, but uh, it really is like time has slowed down. you have to do it overnight. 
yeah, you go to bed. That's what you do. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But of course, always you get the update through when you okay, I've got something to do in like forty-five minutes. And being a, a you know a geek who desperately wants the latest version of the toys, I would say, oh well, maybe there'll be time to update. There was not time to update. Uh, it would always take longer. My wife got one as well. Obviously, I was cajoling her. You've got to get this as well. We can send those little sketchy love heart things to each other. Yeah. Uh, you know the you know the kind of discussion you have about that. And she yeah. was interested in the tech as well. She's a technologist. Um, she manages a team of software engineers at Amazon. So she was she was attracted to the tech, and she's extremely into fitness too. And she had all the same frustrations. Uh, she actually got rid of hers uh, before I sold mine on and moved to the Fitbit. Um, Fitbit has its own sort of closed ecosystem. They've got their own online uh, sort of platform, the, the website. They keep all of your statistics, which unfortunately don't integrate with the Apple Health app, which is the central repository of health data on iOS I assume that's a deliberate choice by Fitbit to keep you locked into their ecosystem. Uh, as an Apple user, we can't really complain too much about that because Apple does it all the time. Uh, I, I like the way Fitbit um, places a, has always placed a big focus on uh, cardiac health. I have a minor heart condition myself, so it's very important and interesting for me to keep track of that stuff. And Fitbit gives you... It tracks your pulse at all times. Uh, Apple Watch didn't used to do that. I don't know if it does now. It used to sample your pulse, I think, only once every minute, unless you were in an active current exercise program, at which point it would do it every few seconds, whereas the Fitbit seems to sample all through the day. Uh, the battery life was long enough for me to wear it for sleep tracking as well, uh, and it gives this sort of assessment of your heart health on an ongoing basis, so that was really important to me. And I just got into the habit of using it. And honestly, it's just like the iOS versus macOS thing whereby it does it does less and it presents you with much less interface, but it does just enough uh, that you can focus on the few things you actually wanted to do. Hey, one of the things you said earlier was you track your calories in a number spreadsheet, which I th I'm kind of surprised because there's so many apps that do a good job of that. I use uh, my fitness pal and like I can look up food anywhere and it always knows the calories for me. Um, what led you to do that in a spreadsheet as opposed to an app? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I don't actually keep a, a huge history of everything I've specifically eaten. All I do is I track the current day and then I get a final, a final total to determine whether it's a deficit and that goes into the big table. So we do actually both, uh, my wife and I do use MyFitnessPal to look up the calories for stuff, but I only have a detailed one for the current day and then historical uh, deficits uh, or surpluses. Okay, that makes sense. Are there any other apps you use for fitness that we uh, should mention? Um, I, again, I occasionally play with stuff uh, that, uh, you know, looks at the the heart health things. Uh, but other than, as I say, my fitness pal to look up and the Fitbit app itself, the only other one I, I really use at the moment is the, the companion app to Fitbit, which is called Fitbit Coach, which is one of these yearly subscription things that gives you guided workouts. Serve, uh, workouts that you can download and, and do. I think it used to be called Fitstar before Fitbit, the company, acquired it, but now it's called Fitbit Coach. So that's something I use. It sounds like you're fairly established at this point in your workout routine. You have set things that you do and, and, and that's working well for you. I'm curious though, when you were earlier in this process and for maybe people who are just trying to get started, 
Were there other things that you used to maybe help you along this journey and to help figure out uh, resources to help get you started? I, I, I just basically did an awful lot of research. Um, I'm one of these people, and I think this very much aligns with those who are in the tech industry or have been in the tech industry or who are, are geeks or whatever that intersection is, um, that you tend to try and uh, exhaustively acquire information beforehand. So I, I just read about in terms of what my goals were for my body, what I wanted to do, what I could do, likely workouts, um, how to lose weight, how to calculate what I was taking in, or how to calculate what I was burning. Um, and I just sort of put together a plan and experimented with things. Uh, honestly, as with virtually every aspect of my, my life, uh, my wife's wise counsel <laughs> was my guide uh, throughout because she'd been quite heavily into fitness before that so so she sort of helped me onto the right track yeah i feel like no matter where you are uh going to your wife and asking advice usually gets you in the right direction at least in my case <laughs> it has it has yet to fail and when i have failed to do so it has always led to disaster <laughs> smart man yeah one of the uh, other areas where i wanted to, to hit kind of lifestyle type things is i know you've been working from home for for quite some time it's been a while since you've actually gone into an, an office and wanted to talk a little bit about how you've set things up for for you to work from home yeah, um, I, it's been, I think it's been more than 10 years uh, that I've been working from home full time. Uh, so yes, this is a well established thing. Uh, I have a, de a dedicated office at home, which we redesigned about a year ago. Uh, as I say, it, it used to be this, uh, this accumulation and aggregation of stuff that any software developer's office slash den naturally becomes. It was piled high with all manner of things. It was impossible to dust <laughs> um, there was just so much stuff and we ripped it all out got rid of absolutely everything got rid of the massive wraparound desk that was necessary to hold all of those ios testing devices uh, and redecorated it and now it's this extremely sort of spartan clear space um that i've painted in my my favorite color which is uh, most of it is a neutral color but my favorite color is purple so my desk nook is painted purple uh, and I've just got a nice clean desk. It's got the iPad sitting on it on a stand. It's got the magic keyboard, as I said, and there's a pencil pot for the Apple Pencil and virtually nothing else. It's an extremely clean, empty space, uh, and it looks straight out a window into, into this beautiful park with a hill leading down to the river. So it's, uh, it's very, very zen. It's one of these exceptionally irritating sort of uh, places that you see photos of on Instagram. You think, well, yeah, but, you know, surely it piles up with stuff during the week. Uh, it really doesn't. I'm very strict to keep it as, as clean and empty as possible. Yeah, you know, I have to admit, as, as a person who needs a Mac for a lot of production stuff I do, um, but there is a part of me that would love the idea of a clean desk without a Mac on it that I can sit and work at. And it, so much so that I'm getting ready to make my own home office. I'm going to have two desks. I'm going to have one desk that is a non-technology desk because I just feel like I need that. I think that's one of the best possible decisions you can make. Even now, um, sitting writing, I always find that staring at a screen, no matter what size of screen it is or whether it's an iOS device or a Mac, that tends to prevent me from thinking about things. So I get up, I walk away, and that's always when, it, when the great idea comes to you or when you go to the bathroom or something. So having a separate space without tech is 100% exactly what you should do. 
we've talked a lot about it, a lot. I'm sorry. We've talked about a lot of apps today. Um, are there any other apps on your iPhone or iPad that are, are helpful that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't talked about today? Uh, I mean, I do still have my social media stuff knocking about, of course, uh, as someone who works from home full time, you still need uh, interaction during the day. Uh, I get a fair bit of that from walking the dog several times, but I, I sit on Slack, which is, you know, the pretty much the standard business water cooler chat app in the world right now, I think, um, with a group of my university friends where we've, we've spoken online literally every day since we all graduated, which is as you can appreciate, a good number of years ago now, uh, and Twitter and Instagram, etc. Um, other than that, I, re- I really do keep it clean. I've my, my iPhone main screen has got literally eight apps on it, including the four that are in the dock. Uh, I've I've tried very much to create a mindset whereby if I'm at the desk and I'm working, and if I don't want to work, that's fine, but I get up and go somewhere else. And we never mentioned your iPhone the whole show. Which iPhone do you use? I've still just got an iPhone 7, uh, which is reaching, I think, the end of its useful life because it's a wee bit reluctant to charge. We didn't want to make the iPhone 10 upgrade last year, uh, just out of that sense of, you know, that prudence about never getting version 1.0 of a new sort of Apple device category. Because uh, I regretted it with the 12 inch Retina MacBook and its keyboard problems. I had uh, three top case replacements for that thing, by the way. Um, and of course, I've mentioned the travails with the initial Apple Watch. So we have held off. Uh, should there be a new sort of iPhone 10 style device in September, which seems inevitable, I imagine I'll probably upgrade at that point. And if there's a new iPad, I'm thinking of going for the bigger one this time. The the 12.9 or whatever size it turns out to be. Do, do you ever, I, I forgot to ask earlier, because you, you use Ulysses. It's got a great iPhone app too. Do you ever do any of your writing on the iPhone? I, I don't tend to do long form writing on it, but what I do is anytime an idea occurs to me for anything, whether it's a, a new story or a scene or a piece of dialogue or even just a few words, um, you're going to lose that stuff if you don't make a note of it immediately. So I just fire up Ulysses and jot it down right then and there. And what I also sometimes do is if I'm reading something back to edit it, I'll read it back on the phone and have the iPad nearby and make a few tweaks uh, just so I can go and like maybe lounge on an armchair or whatever and just flick through it. So I don't use it for writing on the phone as such, but I, I do definitely use the, the iPhone version of the app. So is there anything after making this big switch that you miss about the Mac? <sighs> Difficult to say. I mean, I... <laughs> I do I do miss being part of the, the sort of the Mac sort of power user developer type community quite so much because it was such a massive part of my life. Um, I'd have to say I don't miss using Mac OS. I don't miss using a desktop operating system. And uh, I suppose one small thing is that if you want to use an iPad in a kind of laptop-like form factor, you need to set up a case and there's a bit of sort of fiddle with it, whereas it's effortless with a MacBook. Uh, but that's something you can fix by just buying the right case for the iPad. Uh, I I love the Mac and I absolutely always will. But the truth is, I just don't miss it. Right, you you raised the question. Our listeners are going to send us emails. Which case do you use for the iPad? Um, I've got several. 
I've got lots. Um, I've got the, the one that I use on my desk is it's just it's a, a really affordable, inexpensive aluminium thing that is, it's essentially like an an iMac uh, pedestal that holds the the iPad. It's by a company called Lamical, L A M I C A L L. It's very cheap. You can find it on Amazon. Uh, I use that at the desk when I'm traveling. I'll use a smart cover on the iPad and I take the Apple wireless keyboard with me in a, it's a sort of wrap around cover case thing specifically for the Apple wireless keyboard and it's called the Canopy uh, spelled as you would expect by a company called Studio Neat yes uh, and yeah I think Big you've probably of heard one. of that yeah it's fantastic and even if you're not going to it folds up into a sort of triangular mount for the ipad as well but even if you're not going to use it for that it makes a wonderful travel case to keep the keyboard itself safe so i love that as well the um you know it seems matt like you just took your life you simplified your life when going from development to writing and your hardware simplified along with you and it's it's i'm very envious when i hear your story so thank you for sharing it with us it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm I'm fully conscious, as I said earlier, of the fact that it is um, it's a privilege to be able to have done this. I am in a position that a lot of people, um, you know, don't have the luxury of experiencing. Uh, by being able to make this transition, uh, it's it's made my life so much simpler. It's made my work an awful lot more uh, enjoyable, and most importantly, it's enabled me to stay with the Apple platforms that I love so much, albeit in a different form. Well, Matt, where can people find you? What's the best place to, to go to find all your stuff? Uh, I'm on the web at mattgemmel.com. That's all one word, and it's M-A-T-T-G-E-M-M-E-L-L. So it's two M's and two L's, very commonly misspelled. Um, I'm on Twitter as Matt Gemmel, and I'm also on Facebook uh, at Matt Gemmel once again. All right. Well, thank you so Matt, so much, Matt, for joining us. We will have links to uh, try to have links to everything that Matt talked about in the show notes, which you can find at relay.fm slash MPU. And of course, if you want to continue the discussion for this episode, head on over to our discus forums over at talk.macpowerusers.com. And you'll find a post for this episode uh, where you can interact with other Mac Power users, listeners and share your ideas about this episode. Um, and we'll see how the discussion continues there. So I want to thank Matt again for joining us, and we will see you all next time.